0: Hey guys, I just wanted to talk about isolation for a minute because I know that we talk all the time about being a foster and adoptive parent can be very isolating and a lot of people don't know what you're going through. A lot of the stable moments model was built so that we could reduce isolation and we could get the community more involved, but it doesn't take away from the fact that parents still are feeling like they are in the thick of it and they are alone. Now, the podcast guests that we interview for today's podcast, they are trying to reduce isolation by creating their own podcast and they are a foster adoptive family. So, so hopefully podcasts like theirs do help you feel like you're less alone, but That's not the same as having a tribe. Having a bunch of people around you that understand and you can call on, you can go on playdates and when you are feeling like you just aren't connected, that can be a very scary, vulnerable place because you're stuck in your house with your kids, with your husband in this same dynamic that you are feeling like you just need some connection to the outside world and when you don't have that, it can be scary because you can't get your needs met but I don't know if you're like me or not but I'll have this feeling that I need to be more connected and I'll go on Facebook and connect with a few moms groups I'll see that they have a few things going on and I will have every intention to go meet one of these ladies for coffee or to go show up at one of these play dates or events that they have and then as it comes time to like set that date up or get ready for it something in me is like I I don't know, I put all this like speculation on it that it won't be what I want it to be. Either the women there won't understand me, they won't be people that are in my inner circle. Like, I find myself thinking that I want to find my people. Like, I want to go out and make really meaningful connections because I'm sure that you've gone out and met people or even just ran into people at the grocery store where you have, like, this great conversation. And then you're like, oh, man, I need to have more conversations like this. But the thing is, is we've also all been super disappointed where we went to a party that we were invited to or we went to a mom's date and all the moms or the people there just weren't our people. Like, they didn't understand us. They talked all about themselves and they didn't let us get a word in edgewise. They just didn't seem to be about the same things we were. We didn't have a feeling of comfort with them and it left us leaving like, ugh, I guess my people just aren't out there. So... That's what I put on all my future experiences. I want to make connections really bad, but I want to make connections with very specific people. And what I find is that keeps me in the house. That keeps me not going to have coffee with someone. And the advice that I want to give to myself and hopefully to you if you're in the same situation is to go out and to not put all of those expectations and pressure on these connections you're making. Here's the deal. Inner circle people are one and a lifetime friends. Like it's hard to find those people. And I feel like it's just like online dating. You know, you go out and if you go out into every date and you're sitting down like, Are you my soulmate? Looking at them with like big puppy dog eyes. It's creepy, right? Like we don't need to make huge, meaningful, lifelong connections every time. But I remember when I was doing online dating, I told myself have zero expectations. This is a human being. You're gonna go out, have coffee, learn about them. And if anything is interesting or worth pursuing, then that will happen otherwise you've spent 10 minutes of your life or a half hour of your life getting to know another human in this world and there's nothing wrong with that and maybe you're going to give them something rather than than you take something from them so again my advice is go out stop putting all these preconceived notions on what it might be don't even feel like it's exhausting and you have to get ready like Throw your hair in a messy bun, be whoever you are, and find a person that wants to meet for coffee, find these mom groups, go to a play date, and try. And if you go the first time and it is totally unfulfilling, try again. Because right now, like, I'm wanting to build my friend base, I know that, and I also know that I'm actively working against it because I would rather just like sit in the house. The thing is, is I cannot have friends that just come over when my house is messy and sit on the couch and chat with me until I go out and actually make those friends. So I feel like for foster and adoptive parents, it's the same, you know, you can go out onto these Facebook groups that are for foster and adoptive parents, but try to actually make the connections. If you're going to set up for coffee, be completely honest, tell them exactly what your schedule is, tell them what works for you and go. Go meet some people so that you have some tribe. Like work towards having a tribe because there may be people in the community that want to be that for you and unless you're showing up to receive it, you're not going to get it. And the thing is, is oddly about us, we are really good at giving and especially foster and adoptive parents, super good at giving, right? But when it comes to receiving, we're not so good. We don't always show up for ourselves. So showing up is important. And if you just set it into your schedule that once a week, once a month, whatever, you're going to go do something social, then you can start to build that tribe. Now, if you are somebody that has an amazing tribe, that is awesome. And if you have a great tribe that you um, can offer to somebody else, I would love that too. You know, if you could bring more people into your circle, maybe think about how you could do that so that we're not feeling so alone. You know, I know a lot of people do have great friends and they meet them at church and they um, meet them in their community, but we are in a society where so many people are moving all the time i know that i'm pretty new to my area and it's difficult sometimes to get out there and really find people that are your people but i promise you they're out there and when you have those supports it sets you up for beautiful support and intervention later when you need it and then you also don't know how much you have to offer to somebody else as well. So those are just my notes kind of on on isolation because I've realized lately that I feeling isolated. I spend a lot of my time at my computer and with my son and behind a microphone, but I don't get out and I miss just time with friends. But I also am trying to call myself out a little bit here because. I might write in a comment on Facebook like we should get coffee sometime, but I honestly have zero intention on following up on that and you can't complain that you don't have a tribe and also never make yourself available. So I'm, I'm telling you, I am preaching to myself here, but I just wanted to put that out there. All right. So for today's podcast, we sit down with Amanda and Jason Palmer. They are foster parents. They're adoptive parents. They are the real deal. Um, They actually have a podcast of their own. It's called Foster Care in Unparalleled Journey. And they literally just want to give back to the community and reduce isolation for anyone involved in foster care or adoption. So if you are a bio parent, a foster parent, an adoptive parent, they just want to connect all of the people so that they feel like they belong and have a home, which we know is so important. So they are totally an open book and they talk about so many things like um, loving on birth parents, dealing with trauma, dealing with your own family when you start fostering, adopting, putting up strong boundaries, marriage issues, they are an open book. So. Without further ado, here we go. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, we'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Well, thank you guys for coming on. I'm super excited. And tell me about your story, how you two met, where you're from, and what got you into foster and adoption.
1: Well, we're both from right here in East Central Missouri. And um, we're, uh, we, we've met probably 30 miles from St. Louis. We live 20 mi- within 20 miles of where we met. We've been in this area our whole life. Um, we met because of coffee and chocolate pie
0: yeah lots of chocolate pie (laughs) the best reasons
1: (laughs) and did you say you're in Florida
0: yeah I'm in Florida yeah
1: Florida have waffle houses down there yes okay well if you want chocolate pie and a cup of coffee at midnight that's the (laughs) only place you can go to get it and that's how I met Amanda she was working at a at a waffle house
2: on overnights on (laughs) overnights
1: yep which
2: which can be a very interesting place (laughs) I bet
1: yeah, because that's where all the drunks go. But it was you know, it was just a place I, I was working at the time as a tow truck driver. And I was working an evening shift and I spent a lot of times out of the bed in the in the middle of the night. And so I'd stop and stop in there for a cup of coffee and, and a piece of chocolate pie. And that's how I met Amanda and it all kind of just spiraled upwards from there. We um we've been together now twenty ish years. Yeah. Um we that didn't actually
2: twenty one years. Yeah.
0: Wow. That's-
1: we didn't actually get married until 2006, but, but yeah, we've been together for a lot of years. We've had a lot of kids. Um, We actually, we had two kids between us and then Amanda's oldest sister when, I'm sorry, Amanda's youngest sister was a year and a half older than our oldest son and their mother that they share was going through some addiction issues. And so Arissa, her sister came to live in our house and lived with us for years and years and years. And she called me dad. She called Amanda mom. So she's one of ours. And we really thought we were going to be done after that.
2: Yeah. I mean, three kids. We were pretty young, early 20s.
0: And when you say two kids between you, was that kids from prior relationships or you, you guys had two bio kids? So
2: one child was from a previous relationship. And then we share a son together. Okay. Um, and then your sister. Yes. And then there's my sister. Okay. Um, But she was never a sister. She was just daughter. Um, Your daughter,
0: yeah. At what age did she come to you? Um,
2: Arissa was really young. Year and a half, two years old. Okay. So baby. Um, so at that point we had three kids and we thought, huh. We're managing this. We should probably just manage this. We're young, trying to find our place in the world, not making a whole lot of money, you know, when you're young. Sure. Um, but I was a stay at home mom and Jason was driving a truck and uh, we were living out in St. Peter's had a little bitty, little bitty home, but it was our home and uh, we were doing good to manage all that.
1: And then we ended up moving out here to where we're at now. Well, we live in a different house now, but we're out kind of in the country a little ways. And um, when we came out here, I was actually writing a newspaper article, uh, an opinion piece for the local paper. And it was around Christmas time and I was looking for places for people to donate to some sort of charity, some sort of charitable group that would help people in the area immediately. You know, Red Cross is fine. I'm not mad at them, but if I give money to the Red Cross, you know, three weeks before Christmas, it's probably not going to help any of my neighbors. Sure. So that's what I was looking for. And I went down to our local children's division and was talking to them. And I walked away with a bunch of brochures and came home and talked with Amanda and we had discussed adoption in the past. And as we looked at, at the idea of foster care, we just both went, hmm, this looks like something we should look into. And in almost no time there was a class opening up because we have to have the stars training, which is a class we take for that. So we took the training and as soon as we got our licensure done, the uh work the licensing worker came by our house with a little certificate. And before she left, she said, And by the way, I'd like to talk to you about a couple kids.
0: Wow. <laughs>
1: and yeah, and it was what, two weeks later?
2: Wasn't even two a week. weeks later. It was a week uh, or so after that. For um, our daughter's, she's our daughter now. We ended up adopting these two children. Uh, but the day after her birthday, they came into care. The yeah. family wanted to keep the children until after our daughter's birthday.
1: They had a, um, a birthday, you know, birthday party planned out for her, which it kind of used as like a bit of a like a going away sort of thing, okay. I guess. But um, the family either was not willing or able, or um, or deemed inappropriate depending on which member you're talking about but they were they they were not able to keep the kids in their home they they couldn't follow the rules that they had to follow I guess and so they ended up coming to our house and the first two kids we ever fostered ended up being um, being adopted as well great and
0: we
2: adopted both of them um, we have since come to adopt two more so we uh, we own seven children total <laughs> yeah.
1: seven kids we call our own how about that <laughs>
2: they ran from age four all the way up to Orissa would have been
1: 23. Yep, she would have been 23 this year. Um,
2: Yeah, it's been a crazy ride.
1: There's probably, what, almost 20 kids all in all who've come through our house over the years.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Now, you you said that um, you went down to Department of Children and Families or or whatever you have there, and that kind of spurred this. But I was listening in your podcast. You said something about hearing um, a, a statistic or a quote about churches. Can you talk about that a little bit? And did that um, happen before or after you went down to Department of Children and Families?
1: I think it was right in the same time. I think I actually heard it before that. That's probably what sparked my idea to go to to the to the Children's Division and talk to them. Was just thinking about that particular group of people. But yeah, the Dr. Dobson, if you're familiar with him, he has a uh, a Christian-based radio show, and I I was listening to him. I drive a truck for a living. I listen to a thousand things all day long.
0: Sure.
1: And he had talked about how that. The foster crisis and the the, well, I guess not even just foster, but the orphan crisis we would, we should probably call it in the U.S. is such a huge thing. And at the moment, I think there's close to a half a million kids who need a home. And his statistic was something along the line: if one family out of every third church was to adopt one kid out of foster care, you would empty the system tomorrow. Wow, which just blew my mind. Really blew my. I was like, you know, and I I came from a church that was. Was not really a healthy place for me to be, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> and I I remember I was thinking because I was still pretty angry with that group of people in my head. I was hearing him say that, and I was thinking, man, that's look at all you righteous people out there going to church and thinking you're somebody and you're doing all this good. And you know, I've read that Bible, I've read it a number of times, and it says to take care of the orphans and widows a number of times in there. And you're not doing one of the basic charges. You want to tell me how how good you are, but you're not doing this. And as I'm sitting here going through this rant in my head, I heard a, a voice, you know, not an audible voice per se, but just that thought comes to mind. Well, what are you doing, bud? Mm. What are you doing? You know, you're not doing anything either. And that's probably what really sparked my thought process to go over to Children's Division and talk to them just to see if, if there was a way we could, could push some help in their general direction. Little did I know, it would kind of be the catalyst that would send us to a couple dozen kids.
2: Yeah, and we had thought about adoption before. Yeah. We had never really gotten very far with it. Um, but after I had our second child, I was not able to have any more children. Um, and we had always discussed, I always wanted a big family. I wanted lots of kids running around. Um, and so after, after our second child, I was not able to have any more. So we did, you know, kind of joke around and talk. And, you know, we had talked about, possibly maybe, um, international adoption, adopting a little girl from China. Um, but the cost was, was not something we could afford at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, young family starting out with three kids, you know, one income, it was just not something that was in the books for us. So we just wrote it off for years as, you know, this is something that's not obtainable. Um, and when he started talking about it and he brought home this, Package of papers. It was like it was something that was real and it was tangible, and not only that, it was something that we could do right now to help our area. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not have the greatest childhood. I should have been in foster care, but nobody stepped up in that way for me. Mm-hmm. So I had always decided that I was going to do something to help children. Mm-hmm. And Jason knew that going into it when we first met. You know, I just told him, "This is this is who I am." you know, this is who I am. And you're, if you're going to be with me, you're just going to have to kind of deal with that. And when he brought that package of papers home, it was just like, this is it. Mm-hmm. it. You know, something just clicked and it was like, we can do this. We can help kids. We can help kids in our area. And if it's meant to be, this is how we'll grow our family. And like Jason said, our, our very first placement of brother and sister, they ended up staying forever. <laughs> And they're still here today. Um, Janaya is currently twelve, and Deshaun is fourteen.
1: Nice. And in full blown teenage mode.
2: Yeah, gotta love teenagers. <laughs> uh-huh. You know,
1: that's something that always scared me a bit with teenagers. You know, especially teen girls. Is you know they're supposed to be such a challenge. I'll be honest with you. Um,
2: she's kind of the easiest.
1: She yeah, so far. teen girls so far she hasn't been been that difficult.
2: But she's only twelve too, so there's still quite a few. <laughs> oh yeah,
1: yeah. But you know the um one of the things I learned from, from a guy I know he challenged me one day when I said something about, you know, the, having teams and being such a challenging and difficult thing. And, and he said, really, you know, you can look at it that way, or you can look at it as a bit of an adventure and, you know, how can you do this better? And I thought, huh, I don't have to think about that. And and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I remember being in middle school, right? I remember being in high school. Those weren't easy years for me. Those weren't great years. And they're struggling through so hard, Mm -hmm. just like I was. And just as much as they're trying to figure out how to be a a grown up, you know, from a kid's perspective, I'm still trying to learn how to be a dad of teenagers, even though I've had plenty of them come through my house already. Mm -hmm. I should have some, some knowledge here. It's taken quite a few to get to the point where I feel like I have any, any real knowledge and ability to reach out and help these kids.
0: Uh, It's so cool. It's so cool that um, this seems like it was kind of written in your in your DNA, you know, from the beginning, and that um, you two met each other, and that this kind of just naturally unraveled is really beautiful, and it's crazy, I mean, it's awesome that the first two kids, like, without any expectation, really, the first two kids that came in were able to be adopted, and it sounds like you guys were just, like, we're opening our home, like, whatever this ends up being, you know, we will be for these kids what they need, Um, but it ended up being, you know, your family. Um, which is, which is amazing because so many people come in um, really with a lot of expectations and they are disappointed um, just because they don't know, you know, different um, situations with kids being um, reunified or going back with birth parents or the process to adoption. So um, when you got those first two kids, well, first of all, So so you say you go to this, um, which it's called the different thing in every state, but you go to this training, um, to become foster parents. And literally while you're leaving the first, the first time they're telling you about these kids.
1: No, no, this, this was at the, as soon as we finished it, because it's uh, okay.
0: The end of the, we
2: had had finished our classes. um, It's like like an eight or nine week prior eight
1: or nine week course uh, that you go through.
2: Okay. week prior to actually finishing our classes one of the caseworkers said, hey, you know, we know a couple of kids, they might need a place, you know, they gave us a little bit of information and said, why don't you think about it? Um, And then they came by, and they give you a certificate when you finish your classes to say you're licensed. And as they were giving us the certificate, they said, hey, those two kids that we told you about, they definitely need a home, you know, what do you guys think? And we said, well, you know, this is, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. So yeah, you know, and we went and picked him up and the rest is history. It's just it's we kind picked him up and we took him over away. to
1: McDonald's and I watched her chase a little two-year-old girl around McDonald's because she was just a wild child and <laughs> did not want to sit down and it was hilarious. <laughs>
2: oh, I was terrified. And here I, I've had kids. I already had three kids. Sure. I've done the toddler thing and this little girl, she was just running all through McDonald's. And the only thing I could think of in that moment is it's what am I going to do if she gets out this door? You know, she doesn't know. She doesn't have to listen. I mean, she doesn't know me. She's known me less than an hour and I'm asking her to sit down and she's, she ain't sitting down. I was
1: sitting by the door. She wasn't <laughs> going to get out, but it was hilarious. He's laughing at me,
2: you know, he's laughing and I'm, <laughs> I'm chasing a toddler through McDonald's, but I think I, I do that quite regularly nowadays, chase toddlers through McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it, it's, been such a wonderful, wonderful process.
0: Now, were those children's um, parental rights already terminated by the time that you got them? No, no, okay.
1: no. They were. They were both um, in care. Their, their father was actually uh, father was, was deceased, deceased. Okay. and mom was um, mom was in custody. Mom was time. incarcerated yeah. at that point. Yeah, she had some charges. She was doing time for.
2: Uh, but the goal at that point was still reunification. Okay, they had been staying with um, a grandparent and the goal was reunification. You know, and that's, that's how we looked at it is, you know, this is reunification that I mean, that's what children's division is for that, you know, they push for reunification always. And that's, that's where they were pushing was reunification. You know, it just, it just wasn't in the cards. You know, and that being said, we,
1: yeah, mom was just never able to get herself together she had she had an addiction issue from what i understand and you know i, I don't know what what the issues and where you're from from are but i assume they're pretty similar across the country mm-hmm. meth and heroin are the two big ones that mm-hmm. i just see they steal people's souls mm-hmm. and if i'm not mistaken she was a heroin yes. was she meth yes. i lose track over time no. but you know it's so it's a, a lot of these people i see and and this is a challenge right you you see these stories you hear some of these stories you know if you listen to our story about turtle um little guy who who's ours now right and but when they did the the hair follicle test on him when he came into care the things he came up positive for you know he was positive for weed coke heroin meth and oxys by the way he was one mm. when they did that test mm. you know and it's like that that makes you want to like do bad things to people right mm-hmm. who does it still one year old you're a horrible human right it's really easy to go down that line of of just being angry and And feel like you're justified in in that side of it. But the truth is, as many mistakes as as other people have made, we've made our own fair share of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And if we were to be judged on what our worst day looked like, it might not look that bad, but it would still not be a a good way for people to judge us. Mm -hmm. And if we can, as foster parents, and this is a challenge, so don't get me wrong, I'm not holding ourselves up as saints here who do this perfect. But if as foster parents, we can look at every situation as how can I help this bio parent Mm -hmm get to the place where their life is together enough to where they can raise their children. That is the best possible solution. Mm. Even when I go back to Arissa, you know, Amanda's sister, who who we raised as our own daughter, you know, she loved us. We loved her. She was part of our family. She called our sons brothers. They called her sister, but I still remember her sitting on the front porch with me and she curled up in my lap one day. She's probably five or six. And you know, the, the blonde hair across her face and the big tears down her cheek and said, why doesn't my mommy and daddy love me enough to stop doing drugs and take care of me?
0: Mm.
1: As much as we loved her, as much as that was a great relationship and a wonderful situation for us in a lot of ways, more than anything, the thing that was best for her would have been to have two biological parents who would set aside their silliness set aside the drugs and give their biological daughter what she needed. Mm. And we have to look at every placement that way. That's the best possible solution. Now, some people cannot get over that. Some people can't put down the, the pipe,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. And for those people, we, you know, for those kids, we, we end up looking for a secondary situation. That's why we've got four adopted kids in our house. Yeah. Because it was, you know, different parents who just couldn't get through that. But, but that is our primary goal.
0: Through creating these um, supportive relationships with the biological parents, the kids that you have had that have been reunified, have you kept in touch or have they been thankful for, for that or receptive to that support?
2: So uh, a few kids we still have contact with, we see through Facebook and things like that. But for the most part, um, we usually take care of younger kids, um, toddlers, babies, So a lot of them are not going to remember us Mm -hmm. and a lot of parents don't want to have a reminder of their, Mm. their worst times. That's fair. So if they can get through it without ever having to say, when you were an infant, you were in, you were in care. Sure. So a lot of kids will never know us and, and that's fine. You know, that, that is, that is wonderful, you know, for them to not know that was ever an issue in their life. But we do have some children that we're able to check up on and see um, yeah. and they're doing well. Have been, We've got a couple of brothers that we're able to keep an eye on and they've been adopted out and a sister group that have been adopted out. Um, so it, it is nice to be able to look and, and see the smiling faces and, and know that they're doing well. Yeah. It doesn't always work that way though. <laughs>
0: Sure. And so those situations that you're saying, um, you've followed up with a couple that have been adopted out. Um, So how did that work? And so obviously, these children ended up not being reunified, they did need to find a permanent home. So was it like at the time that Department of Children and Families realized they were going to be up for adoption, they were moved to a family that was going to be a permanent placement? Or how did those work?
1: A couple of them were like that. Um.
2: Yeah, so the sister, we'll just take the sister group that I was referring to. Um, I'm not going to say names or anything like that. But these two little girls, they came to us, and they were an adoptive placement. When they came to our home, they were up for adoption. Okay. Um, And we were looking at adopting these two little girls. They just didn't fit as well into our family, and they needed more more help and guidance than what we could give at the moment with, uh, with all the other kids that we had in the house. And so mm-hmm. at that point, they started looking for another adoptive placement. And we kept those two little girls until they found their forever home.
0: I love that you're talking about this because I feel like one of the biggest concerns that a lot of people have before they start fostering is like, what if this doesn't work for my family? Or what if this doesn't work with my bio kids? Or what if this doesn't work with the kids I've already adopted? And I can't possibly, you know, find a new path for this kid. And I'm always like, you know what, you can, you can set boundaries, you can figure out what's best for your family, what's best for that kid. Department of Children and Families will work with you to do that. Um, But I feel like that's one of the biggest concerns when it comes to. Kids that might not do so well with the dynamic in your family.
1: Yeah, because that, that particular group, the older daughter of the two, I mean, don't get me wrong, they're both great kids. Of course. But
0: it is buttons and Yeah,
1: her specific personal needs, you know, because every kid in foster care probably qualifies as a kid with special needs, right? Because they've been through some sort of trauma.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, you know. She
2: needed a home that didn't have any other children in it. Okay. Yeah, she,
1: ne- she Beside- needed besides more personal attention. For sure,
2: but that I mean that's the thing you you do need to set boundaries. you have to have boundaries for yourself, you have to have boundaries for your family, and you have to be able to set everything aside and do what is best for that child you know, and for this particular set, our home was not what was best mm-hmm. for them, but we were until they were ready to go on to their forever home, and that's been shoot four or five years. Well, no, it's been close to six years now. And these two little girls are thriving. They're doing wonderful. Um, I talked through Facebook with their, with their parents, um, and they're doing great, you know, and they would not have thrived in our home that way.
1: And we had another couple of kids that was two, uh, two boys in our area and, um, are in our, in our County that we fostered for a while. And, and the one kid, he was never diagnosed, but, uh, I will diagnose him with o d d just know that my psychological degrees are all invalid, <laughs> they're imaginary, so yeah. but yeah. he was that he was that type of kid right and and I didn't do well with with that sort of oppositional defiance you know that at that time i just i wasn't good with it and so they went to a placement that was supposed to be their forever placement, something happened that disrupted, they called us to see if you know if we were interested in taking him back into our home, and we went ah man, that was a rough time. That wasn't really good for them. It wasn't really good for us. I said, yeah, tell you what, call around. See if you can find another home, another placement. And if not, call us back. And then I I spoke with a man who said, hey, you know what? This family over here, they had three daughters, but they were looking to adopt two little boys. So we were like, hey, by the way, call these folks. Mm -hmm. You know, they're foster parents in our group. Turns out today, they're adopted into that family and they're doing great and wonderful and amazing. And just being willing to say no when it wasn't healthy for them or for us to say yes, it didn't feel awesome at the moment, right? It never feels good to say no when somebody's asking you to help a kid. But I know that what we did at that point was we gave those kids an opportunity to find the right place for them.
2: by saying no, we were helping. I love it. It just
1: wasn't easy to see it that way. And you have to know that that's always a possibility. It's always a capability. We have the ability to tell our county, no, we're not interested in taking any 12-year-old females, who happen to be of this race, this, you know, we we can put restrictions on that if we want or not. And for us, you know, we, we really, we've always kind of tried to stay younger than our youngest. That seems to be the most important thing we can do that helps kind of steady our birth order and our kids do well with that. Okay. You know, other than that, we don't have many restrictions, but that's just how we've done it. And it depends on your family dynamic as to what's best for you. And that allows you a lot of room. Yeah. You know, because we had, you know, we were always, you know, we were a little bit concerned about racism from some of the family members that we had because we didn't know how that was going to go over. That was something that we talked about a lot, and we ended up deciding, hey, you know what? We'll take whoever comes to us, and we'll go talk to those family members and say, hey, here's what we're doing. If you don't like it, we won't bring this around you. But you know, this is what we're doing, and because that was just a, a point of who we were, we, that's who we wanted to be. And if we need to draw some boundaries around other family members as well, and that's that's the thing that so many people don't realize that options there there are not that many barriers to entry. You have to have a home that is relatively safe. It's not a fire trap and you're not like cooking meth in the bathtub. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's everybody's worried about the home inspection all There's all these different ideas as to why I could never do this. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is each and every one of us probably could. If it's what, what you need feel like you need to do. If it's something that, that has some meaning, if you hold value in that place, And I think that's for us, that that was a real key is that that's what we felt like was important.
0: Yeah. So talk, you just brought it up. Talk a little bit about the family, the extended family dynamic. So um, people that are in your family um, dealing with your decision to foster and adopt, um, how they react to your kids. I know I hear horror stories sometimes of like, you know, Thanksgiving where the foster kid or the adopted kid's there and everybody's, you know oh, he can have this. Why are you so mean to him? He can have all this food and he can have all this stuff. And it's like, well, he has food issues and they have to like, you know, constantly um, defend themselves and defend their parenting and teach people about trauma and all this stuff. So um, can you speak to your experience?
1: We have some interesting family dynamics for sure from our family of origin issues both. You know, um, we don't spend a whole lot of time around most of Amanda's family. There's a lot of addiction issues over there. It's just not healthy to be around for us, let healthy, alone a foster kid. It's not kid.
2: safe, and so we draw some pretty hard boundaries for our kids um, in order to protect them. But when we first started fostering, there were a few family members on my side and Jason's side that we went and we sat down and we talked and said, "Hey, you know, this is what we're doing." We worried more so about racism um, from a lot of the older generations. Well, yeah,
1: because yeah, you know, Amanda's grandma. Um,
2: she would, she would tell you that she did not see or meet her first black person until she was 21 years old, um, where she grew up that just, that was, wasn't where she came from. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we were really worried about how she would treat the children that we were going to have and to treat anybody poorly was just not an option for us. Sure. So we went and we sat down and we talked to her and said, Hey, you know, if if this is going to be an issue for you, we will stay away. We will stay away, you know, and you won't be welcome in our home. And it's a hard line to draw with your family because that's your family. Yeah. This is my grandmother and, and I don't associate with a whole lot of my family. So to essentially take one more person away It's not something you look on lightly. The Mm -hmm. great
1: irony, though, was we had Carl with us. Carl wasn't his real name. That's just what we called him. Yeah, Carl was with us. He was the blackest little baby you've ever met. Super dark skinned black kid, right? No question whether he's mixed or whatever. He was just the happiest baby you've ever met as well. And so when Amanda, as pale as she is, is in the grocery store one day with her grandma. And so Amanda's carrying around a super dark skinned little baby. So we, you know... This guy is walking to the store, like giving him the stink eye. And then Grandma, who we thought was going to, ha- we were going to have to deal with some racist issues of our own, she had fallen in love with this little guy. Mm. And this guy keeps giving them the stink eye, to the point where Grandma finally, and she was at the age she can get away with it, she finally <laughs> just kind of loses her stuff, and um, made the guy embarrassed enough to where he just left his cart and left the grocery store.
2: Yeah, she cussed him out in the store, and I'm trying to. <laughs> So us your kids. I'm like, come on, guys, let's go, let's go. Um, so a lot of places where we thought it was going to be an issue, fortunately for us, it wasn't. And it
0: sounds like I, it kind uh, of brought you closer in in some aspects. And,
2: and it really it, it opened her eyes in a lot of ways. And so it was really good for her, too. But I think just taking the time to go and talk to her about it in the beginning and say, hey, this is what we're doing and drawing those boundaries and saying, this is what's acceptable and this is what's not. So that she knew without a doubt what was going to be accepted and, and what wasn't. And so it ended up, ended up not being an issue. I mean, yeah, like Jason said, I mean, she fell in love with this little boy and, you know, it, it really opened her heart and her mind. So it, it's it's been a wonderful experience all
0: the way around. It's great advice to say, you know, be intentional, try to understand what obstacles you're gonna have. Be, um, you know, honest about the things you have going on in your family. Like if racism is an issue, talk about that. And having those conversations shows that you're really serious about this. It's really not fair to your family to say, oh, it's Thanksgiving, and by the way, we've got three foster kids in the car with us, and I, you're, I'm gonna expect you to know how to deal with that. So. Right, here we are. Yeah, exactly. Those conversations and, and, and treating it like, like a, you know, a big deal that something that you're asking for their support from is huge. And then they can kind of build some ownership around that. Like your grandma did. And it's like, this is her little grandbaby and she's going to defend him. I love that. Well, and the thing is, is kids don't come
2: into care for no reason. Mm-hmm. You know, every kid has a reason as to why they're in care and it all stems around some form of trauma and we're not here to create more trauma mm-hmm. and you want to do whatever you can to make sure you're not creating more trauma and so by by going and having those hard conversations beforehand you take that out of it mm-hmm. you know you don't have to worry about that part of it
1: well i think part of the challenge too is that the parenting that we grew up with you know don't do this or i'm gonna whoop you
0: mm-hmm. right
1: i mean i don't know about you but i was raised by some old school parents i met the switch you know i probably deserved it
0: mm-hmm. but
1: it, it, that was an effective method for a kid like me in the place i grew up in i guess you would say um but that's not an effective way to to raise kids who've been through heavy trauma mm-hmm. And most people don't realize, they don't think through that. They, they don't understand the, you know, are you familiar with Karen Purvis and the TBRI?
0: Yeah.
1: Trust-based relational interventions. If you don't know about it, you know, go look it up, people. It's it's like magic. Um, you know, but if you most people don't know about that. And they don't understand what size of traumas can, can trigger some of those problems. So when you have a kid, like you said, who looks like a normal kid, they don't have scars. You don't see cigarette burns all over their body. They haven't cut up. They haven't been, you know, there's nothing obviously wrong. You can't see the scars because they're inside.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Because this kid has been starved half to death by his mom. Mm -hmm. Because he only got one glass of water every day. And that was on a good day if he behaved. Mm -hmm. And since she really had a lot of grudges against him, usually he wasn't considered to behave. That wasn't a normal day for him. And so when you have a kid who has some of those food issues, and you walk into, you know, grandma's house on Thanksgiving, and there's food everywhere. I mean, somebody's going to be surprised that there's half a pumpkin pie shoved inside of a bag in the back of the car that's being smuggled home, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they're going to think the kid's doing something wrong. But the truth is, is food hoarding is a big deal,
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially when you've been starved.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, because we knew a kid who'd been through exactly that story I was talking about, right? That's exactly what he did. And it took some work to get him to the point where he was okay with that. And everybody who shows up at grandma's house is not going to understand that. Mm. So being able to take the time to have some conversations maybe with some key people in that family,
0: mm-hmm.
1: say, Hey, here's what we're doing. You know, do me a favor. Don't have your kids walk over and hand, you know, two slices of chocolate pie to this little boy. Cause he's going to try and stick one of them in his pocket. It's right. not going to work, but he's right, even try. if
0: he, even if he tries to get them all to go get a piece for him, tell them not to. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes.
1: You know, but, but those are the issues that you have to deal with. And, and if you can have a family that's supportive enough to work through that with you, man, that's powerful so that this whole group can kind of come around this kid and kind of help them work through these issues together instead of looking at you and saying that you know you're a bad parent because you won't let them have this and we've experienced some of that in our you know in our own experience and people they they look at you they make judgments and whatever judge me if you want i'm a big brown guy with a big black beard and i really don't care a whole lot what you think about me right i've learned that to put that thick skin on because your opinion doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not I do the right thing for this kid. As long as I can keep that mentality in my mind, it's really easy for me to continue doing it. But a lot of people don't have that thick skin. They haven't had the time to build that. Mm-hmm. And you have to be willing to, to come into this situation and educate people and keep people around you who will help you provide a supportive environment for a kid to begin to heal.
0: Yeah, and you're talking about like, at the end of the day, it's not about you. Like, so you have to have a thick kid or thick skin so that you can b- protect the kid because it's not about you. And in trauma um, informed techniques, they always talk about, you know, to not take it personally and not be offended. Certainly don't react in a way that is joining their chaos. Um,
1: I hate you. I hate this house. I don't even want to be here. You're horrible. You're mean. Uh, like three times this week and it's okay. Monday.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> like I get it. And, but you know what, when you learn not to take it personally, and you don't react in a personal way. 20 minutes later, we're good. Right? You know, that whatever it was that came out. Yeah, you know, it's it's okay. It's it's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's when you realize that it's a trauma coming out. Mm. When you look at this kid and realize that even a 10 12 14 16 year old kid is still having pieces of that trauma come out. And recognizing when the reaction you're getting is trauma. Mm. It's the after effects of trauma that you're dealing with so that I don't take it personally. You're not being, you're not, you're not trying to to get me to, and maybe you are trying to get me to react, but I'm not going to, because I know that what I see is trauma. So I'm going to be calm. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to work through that. I might go in the other room later and want to put a hole in the wall because you did actually get to me a bit, but I'm not going to respond that way because it's not going to be healthy and it's not going to ultimately serve us creating a connection in a way that will work towards your long-term success.
0: Well, I, and I love that you said, and I might want to go put a hole in the wall or shoot, you might actually. And I like that you say that because I feel like a lot of people might listen to trauma-informed principles and go like, okay, well, like, sorry, but I did take it personally. Like he called me a fat pig and then, you know, spit at me and, um, I've given everything to this kid and all of that. And it's like, it's also okay that you felt that way, and oh, you yeah. do need an outlet for you to go take care of yourself, but it just can't be in reaction to the kid.
1: Well, yeah. and I mean,
2: we're all human, we all have feelings.
1: Well, the important thing is we all have an amygdala, and when that kid manages to spike that part of your brain that reacts with fight or flight, you just have to be the grown up in the room. Mm. It's your job to take a breath. Mm. It's your job not to respond the same way they're responding. Otherwise, you end up looking like a three and a four-year-old having a you know having a competition to see who can win the argument. Mm. Spoiler alert: they, neither one of them ever wins. Yeah, <laughs>
0: you'll never win. <laughs> exactly.
1: You know, but your job is to realize that yeah, hey, I have an amygdala, and it's gonna get it's gonna hit hit pretty hard sometimes. These kids know how to how to find the right buttons. Every kid does. We did when we were kids.
0: Sure.
1: But you have to train yourself to know, hey, I'm not going to react in an angry way. As a matter of fact, I, and this has taken some years of practice and a lot of kids. When I react, well, no, when I respond, because there's a difference. A reaction is what my amygdala wants. The response is what I choose. So when I respond, my kids have learned the most dangerous thing they can hear is dad gets soft. His voice gets a little bit lower. and I start to sound incredibly calm. Hmm. Because what that means is I'm controlling something inside of me. Like this is the controlled place. And I'm going to continue to, and I'm not going to be ignorant. I'm not, I refuse to be loud. I will refuse to have this argument and have something that's going to damage this relationship. But when we're done, I'm probably going to need five minutes. You just give me five and leave me be. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I have to blow a little bit of steam off. But that, but we all have that. It's, it's sure. a natural reaction that you learn to control and respond differently than you want to.
0: I love it. So, tell me, what was your first entry into um, TBRI, or just any trauma-informed techniques, or we really need to be therapeutic foster parents or adoptive parents?
2: Um, well, our very first placements. Okay. You know, um, Janaya and Deshawn, they they witnessed quite a bit of trauma. Um, we we knew from the get go that we were going to have to learn to do something different that this was not like parenting that we had ever done before.
1: But to be fair and honest at that point in time, let's see, we're going back 10 a little over 10 years ago.
2: Yeah. It didn't exist really.
1: Yeah. We didn't have that. No, We didn't have that information. We just, we were kind of winging it.
2: We were, um, we found a good therapist and did some play therapy, you know, and you just, it's been a learning curve ever since you, but know, the, you, you soak up the information as you can find it.
1: The TBRI um, we've, we've kind of recently stumbled into and been learning yeah. some of that. Um, there was actually a post on Facebook a while back. I don't know if you saw it. A lot of people in the foster community saw it. it was a story about, um, about ramen, a, a little boy and some ramen noodles.
0: Yeah. And I listened to your podcast. Okay. With her.
1: okay. So yeah. And, and she talked a lot about that with us and, and actually she, she gave us some, some resources that, since I drive for a living, anything that's on video or audio, I can just turn it on and throw it in a seat and listen and, and learn that way. And I have learned so much learning. Karen Purvis is who she talks about a lot, who I think is kind of like the, the godmother of TBR. Right? God,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: And just so much information there. They go, okay, well, I can see where I was doing some of this. Like we, we stumbled across some of the right things. And some of it, we maybe were a little bit off and we're, we're in that process of learning how to do it better and better every day. Of course. But it is such a valuable thing. To understand that you're not, you're not raising kids. You're not. You don't have kids in your house who've had a perfect Warden and uh, what's her name, Warden June Cleaver type background, right? That they, they didn't have a perfect childhood. Not that any of us did, but they had right. some really specific, very acute traumas to deal with. And so we have to just like do, do whatever we can at it and see what sticks. You know, hope for the best. And so now we've we're in this age of technology that's so different from anything our parents or anybody else has ever experienced. If I wanna know about kids who've been through trauma, I go to Google, right? I go to YouTube, I go to, it's all out there. And all this information is available to all of us if we're willing to go look at it and just just educate ourselves a little bit. And that's been a real powerful thing to us though. But I'd say learning, um, I've learned a lot. I listened to Karen Purvis and some of those resources.
0: That's great. Um, for those who haven't seen the viral Ramen post, um you guys can go on um Jason and Amanda's podcast um and see the interview with the mom who is also a social worker as well, right? she has she's a I don't remember
1: if she still is. I know yes, she's yes she she was. Okay.
0: Yeah. So she has that background anyway, and she's fostered kids, and it's um, foster care and unparalleled journey is Jason and Amanda's podcast, and you can go on there, and I think that it's titled Trauma and Ramen.
1: That's the one. Yes.
0: Yeah. Or something like that, so uh, you guys can find it easily. Um, but it's a great story of um, of that mom's experience with her little boy's trauma around uncooked ramen. Okay. So. I know that, Amanda, I've listened to some of your backstory, and uh, obviously, we all have trauma that we have to work through. Mm-hmm. How much, like, this is what's interesting to me, because I feel like it not, has nothing to do with really being a foster parent, because I feel like all of us, to be better people, have to, like, address our own trauma, and the more we can go back and kind of address our own stuff, the more we can show up in our lives for other people but I feel like being a foster parent, it's like the demand for you to heal your own stuff is put on hyperdrive because I feel like it can it can do that. Um, it can kind of show you your own stuff. So what does the process look like for being a therapeutic um, trauma-informed parent at the same time as like, what healing has happened for you through this process for both of you?
2: Well, I mean, there, there's a lot. I mean, that, that's a, a big question. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. but I will say you do have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of your past, finding what works for you, whether it be writing, meditation, a good counselor, a good doctor, you know, mental health is a, is a big thing. And so, you know, we have a guy that we go and talk to monthly. Dr. Tom is awesome. Like clockwork, you know, we have to have our avenues too. Mm -hmm you know, I have to have a place to get it out. You know, there's some of these stories that we come in contact with that I'm like, wow, that was, that was me, you know, and you have to be able to separate yourself from that because you don't do any good for a child at that point.
1: Actually, if you, if you happen to catch it because I accidentally re or mislabeled the date that I wanted to release a podcast the other day. And so it was out and available for like three minutes. I know a bunch of podcasters, <laughs> uh, podcatchers caught it. Um, but if you see one out there, um, it's uh, Zoe. It was the name of the girl that we interviewed. And, and Zoe kind of, she tells a big part of Amanda's story.
0: Is that the 16-year-old? Yep. I, I already listened to it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was not supposed to come out for, for a few more weeks. <laughs> that was it
0: was, a it
1: was like six weeks out, and maybe somebody might have hit the wrong schedule button when he
2: but posted I, it. I would say that it's it's been good for me because it's made me go back and have to address some things that I was maybe avoiding, uh, of that course. I just, you know, put away and was like, eh, I don't have to deal with this. You know, it just will throw this back there and I'm not going to deal with that. Um, so it's, it's been really good for me because it's helped me take care of myself better and I got to be the best that I can be mm-hmm. so that I can do what's best for For the kiddos, so.
1: I think another thing that's really done for Amanda is to be able to see her, see these kids go through something, be able to empathize with these kids, and in the long term, be able to see her own past journey through that lens. Mm. And that's given her a lot of, I think.
0: It's
2: given me a voice. Yeah. When I didn't always have a voice. Um, It's easier for me to stand up for others. And I'm good at that. It's hard for me to stand up for myself sometimes. And so this whole process has, has really opened my eyes and, and given me a voice where I didn't feel like I had one.
0: Yeah. And giving, being their voice is being your voice and yeah. helping them heal is your healing. Cause you're, exactly. yeah, I, I love that. And, and when you said like, oh, things that we put away, like through my own journey of trying to work on, you know, past stuff, there is no, oh, I'm healed. You know, it's like, you're just always working on stuff, which is so like, Oh, do I always have to work on stuff? But you're always working on stuff. And I feel like, you know, you only get to work on a little, as much as you can take and like your, your body, your mind can only take so much of that vulnerability and like our defense mechanisms are there to protect us. So through these kids and through different situations in our life, we get opportunities to kind of buy opt in again, to work on ourselves and to, to address, those things that we have put away. Um, but I was wondering if you were going to say that, you know, this has been a really healing journey for you just because you're advocating and caring for people that are giving them the care that you didn't get, you know? Yeah. I love that. Yeah.
2: yeah. It also helps that I have a really supportive husband. He's, he's pretty good. <laughs> he puts up with my craziness on a daily.
0: <laughs> <laughs> as far as, um, foster and foster care and adoption go what has it been like for your marriage um like has it brought new complexity i'm sure it's brought new complexity to your marriage but as far as like how do you guys stay like a united front and on the same page
1: you know (laughs) amanda and i both came from from broken homes my my parents divorced after i left the home but they probably would have been well served to have done that years before sure. they, they had a lot of bad years prior to the actually divorcing and Amanda, you know, she had her own, her own problems with, you know, an, an absentee father and you know, men in and out of the house and different people. And so we, we really had modeled for us a lot of the things that will cause divorce. And the, one of the things that I think we both came to the relationship with was, Hey, you know what? This wasn't awesome. I, what I went through wasn't awesome. What she went through wasn't awesome, and we're going to work hard at this. And because we saw all these different problems, now my parents had their set of issues. Amanda's family had their set of issues, and they were different, but that allowed us to both kind of see the weaknesses in where we came from and some of the strengths, and be able to intentionally build it together. And I think we came together 20 years ago with that as a basis, as a foundation for our relationship. said,'m I'm not, I'm not here going to say that I'm perfect. And it's going to be easy or she's perfect and it's going to be easy. Neither one of us are perfect, but it's not going to be easy, but we're going to do it. And that's where we came at it from. So as far as when we started fostering by that point, we've been through quite a bit together yeah. and the foster care has brought a lot of unique experiences to our home. And, you know, but at the same time, it's also shown us just how, how fortunate we are in a lot of ways you know, in a lot of ways that we're able to find these kids who need a parent, who who need a stable place. And we have worked for years to build a stable place, to, if not just for us and our kids, our bio kids, you know, it's, it's created this place where another kid can come in and experience that and allows us to share some of the struggles that we've had, some of our own personal um, situation with some kids who haven't experienced that. You know, there's a lot of kids who've never seen Two grown adults, husband and wife, disagree with one another and do it in doing a respectful way.
2: Not hurt each other, not harm each other, whether it be with fists or words. You know, a lot of kids have never seen that being modeled. And so, you know, I would say for us, we were in a good place when we started fostering, mm-hmm. but I would say that it is still, it's brought us closer. Mm-hmm you know it's made us be more intentional Mm. you
1: know that's one of the things we have we have to be intentional like with our time you know because if anybody who's married knows if you just let it wither it'll wither and die Mm. you know if you don't build that relationship you know just before this call today you know date day was not anything fancy today we um got in the car we have a subway (laughs) in a mcdonald's in our town so we went to subway and we sat in the park and we ate our lunch and we just spent you know spent some time together and talk and and discuss things with the kids, with our lives, with our work, with that, but we're still building that. You know, 20 years later, guess what? You don't get to quit building. Mm. You know, plant a tomato plant sometimes, and you tell me, at what point does it just stop growing and sit there just like it is? Mm -hmm. It never does. either grows or it dies. Mm. Relationships are the same way. You water it, you fertilize it, and it'll grow. You just let it sit there and ignore it, and it will die. Mm. There is no stasis, and that's something, you know, we've had to struggle through, because Over the years, you know, sometimes we've had what, six, seven kids in the house? Yeah. And it's a challenge to find time to have a date night or time together or when you're working 60 hours a week and she's working, you know, 40, 50 hours a week and you have six kids in the house and 90% of them all have a trauma background that we have to deal with. But that's also a piece of our life that is just as important as anything else these kids are going to, we need to deal with these kids. They also need to see stable adults in a stable relationship modeling that for them so they know that that's a possibility
0: Mm -hmm. I love it so tell me about your podcast the mission of your podcast what you're really like hoping to do and then tell people the best ways that they can find you
1: okay our podcast is foster care an unparalleled journey and we started it. more or less, well, when, when Arissa got sick and passed away, we went through a tough time. We actually took some time off of, uh, off of fostering because, well, we just weren't in a place to take care of that. Mm-hmm. And I really felt like we were kind of stepping away from what something that had a lot of meaning in our life. We were kind of swimming in, in a sea of lost for a while. And so I decided I was going to find something to do. And I ended up creating a blog site. And you can find that at jasonmpalmer.com. And the the podcast is up there as well, but that was kind of where I started. And I was just encouraged by a few people in in a dad's group I'm in that said, "Hey, man, you need to write. You need to talk. You need to do something. You know, you have a lot of experiences. Go go share these with people." And the podcast just seemed to be the easiest way to do it. And so I sat down and, and recorded my first podcast, which I think since has been um, burned somewhere because it was horrible. <laughs> Everybody thinks their first one is horrible, but my first one was just me sitting down trying to figure out what in the heck I'm doing. I had no clue. And then I started recording a couple other ones. And Amanda was coming in into the office one day. I said, Hey, you want to sit down and do this with me? And I figured out real quick that we're better together. <laughs> Neither one of us are horrible humans, but we're better together. And so we, we started just telling stories. And that seems to resonate with people. You know, if you listen to The Legacy of Turtle, which is kind of a long one, that's why it was broken up in so many pieces, he has a deep, long dark rich story that that is just like everything you've heard bad in life that you can go through he probably went through almost all of it mm-hmm. and to be able to tell that story to people and then show who he is today and see that he came from this dark place you know or to be able to sit down we interviewed a lady named Amy and hope for amy is all about a woman who got pulled into a methamphetamine addiction and after the meth addiction it was the money addiction that came from selling the meth mm-hmm. And she was a full blown dealer. And then she finally got, you know, her kids got taken away and she got, she got pulled out to the place where, you know, she had to get clean. She had to change her life. And, you know, today she's got, I think three years sober. Yeah. I think that's what I saw her post recently.
2: Three years clean. She has her children
0: back. Ah,
1: Yeah. and, And so to, to give these stories to people to know that, man, I know it looks dark, whether you're a kid who's going through tough stuff, there is a light at the end of the tunnel whether you're the bio parent who's going through the tough stuff, there is a light at the end of that tunnel and bring as much of the community together that we, as we can to be able to create a future that's brighter than what it is today.
0: Well, and it's huge, especially for the foster care and adoption community. I mean, it's isolating. It's hard to, it's hard to find people that get what you're going through and understand your journey. And it's just, nice to know you're not alone yeah it can be pretty lonely
1: yeah when you find yourself in the grocery store with that kid who's odd who's decided that he's gonna have a meltdown right here and you're gonna deal with it and and half the grocery store looks at you like well who are you you know and nobody understands what's going on Mm -hmm. to have some people around you who who can help you help you with that who are you can lean in on build that community
0: yeah well, this has been awesome. I'm so excited to give this to my listeners. I think that they're going to love your story, and I think that they're going to love your podcast even more and I feel like you know having this little intro and them getting to know you on here will will help them bridge that gap and and make them go over there um, and get that connection and support that you guys offer
1: yeah we're we're um always about the mission of just spreading information yeah. and bringing people together yeah. so you, you
2: know, know and not only the podcast you know if anybody has a question or needs to talk reach out to us get a hold of us you got a question if we don't know the answer we'll find the answer if you just need someone to talk to someone to vent to you know we're here
1: yeah we're easy to find on on email you know it's just foster care as an unparalleled journey foster uj at gmail.com and if you want to find the podcast, we should be on all the big podcasters out there, all the podcast uh, catchers, I guess you'd call them, the iTunes, the Spotify, the iHeartRadio. I think we just got on Pandora the other day.
0: Sounds great. Well, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day and keep rocking it out. Keep doing what you're doing. We're so lucky in this world to have people like you.
1: Thanks a lot.
0: All right. I'll talk to you guys later. Thank you. Bye. Right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. right guys there it is you have it there are people out there there's so many people out there and it is time for you to find your tribe if you're feeling isolated do something to reach out actually make that coffee date. actually go to that church group actually go somewhere and regardless of how uncomfortable it is or how exhausted you feel try and make a discipline of reaching out to feel more connected because I understand how isolating it can be. And as I work to try to get the community to understand how foster and adoptive parents feel, and as I work to try to build this community as one that is receptive of what you're going through, I also want you to step out so that you can make those connections. The truth is nobody is alone, regardless of how much we feel that way. Nobody is alone. There are people out there that are feeling the exact way that you do and have dealt with this before. And what might help is next week, we are interviewing uh, the ladies from the Adoption Connection, Lisa and Melissa. So if you wanna do some pre-homework, you can go on the theadoptionconnection.com and they actually offer a bunch of resources in a Facebook community for people just like you. So that's one way that you can step out. All right, guys, I can't wait for that interview. I hope this was helpful. Please go ahead, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and share. All right, talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.